Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue on through the Sermon on the Mount. We take this in little bits and pieces. You've noticed that. I, I don't know if that's just to fill out the lectionary for the whole year or if it's that it's, it's such a moving account that we can't really handle more than that at one time. And we come today, we come today to that, that section that reminds us of, of those aspects of the, of the commandments, uh, not the first tablet, but the second. This is the list of those commandments that uh, speak to us in regard to community, the fact that we are in community with God. One of the things that I think is so difficult for people to understand is that at creation, God finally decided and defined what he would have, and that would be a community of believers, not only because... uh, God chose to do that, and we need not question it, but because that's what's good for us as well. This came to mind, actually, I was working on this, on this sermon for this morning, and I actually had a person approach me uh, in terms of some pastoral counseling and ask, what can I do to get closer to God? I just kind of want it to be, you know, where can I go? I can't really go to a, a monastery, but, but where can I go so I can just get closer to God and I can put all these things of the world aside? Why do you want to do that? Well, become so frustrated. And then we had a teaching moment because, you see, it's not that it should just be about God and me or God and you, but about God and us. We were created in community, Adam and Eve not just the helpmate, but beyond that in terms of partner to develop community and to live in harmony with one another. Remember the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, rats. (laughs) Had that first part down, that was kind of fun. Well, today we're dealing with the second part. Today we are dealing with what it means to live in community and to really examine ourselves because of of how we live in community. And and at first it looks pretty simple, does it not? Well, okay, we we don't murder anybody? Yeah, we can go with that one. Uh, Let's see. Oh, Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it was said not murder. Okay, and each... As you've noticed, as we've gone through this, this was repeated over and over. It was said, it was said in ancient times. But then notice what Jesus adds. And this is what really bugs you, doesn't it? But I say, oh my. Don't, don't, doesn't that just, don't, it's just haunt of your parents. You know, I can remember that as a kid. You know, this might be, but what I say, okay, Dad, discussion over. But I say, And then we look at these things in a much fuller context. What does it really mean to murder someone, to commit adultery, to to consider divorce? What does lust do in our lives, you see, to control us and destroy us? What about the, the legal game playing here? Notice the one thing here, on your way to court... You're to work things out with your adversary. Don't get to court, Jesus is saying, because if you get to court and the judge makes a decision, you're going to jail. 
Now think about this, and this is really what I think, I think this is a, a key point, and this shows that Jesus has a real sense of humor. We often don't see the humor in here, but this is pretty funny when you think about it, because, okay, you go to court, you're being sued because you have a debt you owe your neighbor, you're not working this thing out, and so the judge puts you in jail until you pay the debt. Think about it. How are you going to pay the debt if you're in jail? You can't work. You can't do it. That's hilarious. He expects that. That's, that's stand-up right there from Jesus is what it is. We're going to the funny bone with that one. If that were Jerry Seinfeld instead of Jesus, you'd be laying on the floor right now. But that's the case, you see. We look at these things and we neglect to, to see them in sense of community. What is better for the community, that you put the debtor in jail that the debtor is able to work off the debt and that the two of you can be reconciled and live together in harmony? Is it better that we ravage societies with divorce or people come to understand that marriage is not just about love? As a matter of fact, some of you aren't going to like this, but I'm going to say it. Marriage isn't really about love at all. Love is about love. Marriage is about commitment, and we've lost sight of that in this society, have we not? And when we lose sight of our, 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 our willingness to commit one another in, in community, what can we say about our willingness to commit to the Christ who's committed to us? That's the challenge for us here. And then we look at this We understand that Jimmy Carter made a lot of hay out of this. I say to you, Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman in lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what's really nice about this is even in this translation, which is a fairly modern one, and people, well, you know, when it comes to divorce, it was all of a sudden, well, what about the woman? Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to this one. What about the woman here? Apparently men can only, can only lust in their hearts. I don't think that's right. I want equal time here for women, too. You ever notice when the ads come in the mail, you got shoe ads, and they're all women? I've been looking for a pair of desert boots for six months, and, and we never get an ad for men's shoes, ever. I think that's discrimination. I'm sorry. The point being, is that we have to eradicate those things that cause us to sin. And it's selfishness. No, we don't have to gouge our eye out and cut our hand off. But Jesus is saying in hyperbole that that, hyperbole for those of you who didn't make it through eighth grade English, by the way, is exaggeration for effect, okay? Not lying. I never lied to my parents. I hyperbolated. I want you to know that. What Jesus is saying is it is better to do something so radical and change than it is to put up with it and continue doing what we're doing. The one one thing that comes to mind here is, is that we have to recognize that the point I think that Jesus is making here is that these laws have to come to fulfillment in community. They're meant to strengthen us because they force us to think about our relationship to one another, hence our relationship to God. 
Matthew's a good Jew. We, we understand that. So he starts this whole list off with thou shalt not murder. Then he goes, and Jesus takes this, and he says, I'm not just going to let it end there. It's not just that we don't murder somebody. It's that we are not angry with them. But I say to you, Jesus says, if you're angry, you're liable for judgment. If you insult, you'll be liable to be judged by the council. And if you, if you call someone, and, and here's why I don't really like the modern, I mean, you fool. What? what? Does that hurt anybody? You fool. Yeah. Who cares? You fool. Well, that's because we can't put what it really means here in a family-friendly church service. That's what it is. The term is raka. And raka is a, 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 a term of just abs, abject, utter, total contempt. How do we talk about people? How do we think about people? Because, you see, we think with words, do we not? I remember I was teaching uh, English at Wellington College, and you, you know the little freshmen would come in and starting their writing course, and they didn't want to be there. It was required, and they were going to be engineers, and they were going to be this and that, and they didn't need to know how to write a paragraph. And I said, well, maybe you need to learn how to think. Oh, boy, that really upset them. And then I said, ponder this. You think with words. And then one of them stood up, Herb. I don't remember Herb's last name. I remember Herb. Herb stood up and he was going to argue with me. And I said, hey, Herb, you're using your words. We think with words. And so what we say is what we are thinking. And what we need to do is recognize that when we are angry, we're dealing with thoughts. And thoughts can be right and thoughts can be wrong. When we're angry, the underlying cause of the anger is a feeling. And feelings can't be right or wrong. They just are. And we must come to terms with what we are feeling. Anger, my friends, you see, is not a feeling. It's a coping device. It's a way of dealing with a feeling. Why am I angry? Am I afraid? Have I been threatened in some way? Am I embarrassed? Have I been embarrassed in some way? Do I feel that I'm losing control in a world that's just so, so rapid around me? Come to grips with your feeling because in that feeling you will find the depth of Christ in your life, you see. And so that's why it's not enough just to not murder we cannot have these, these angry senses within us. There's a great story about Plato, you know, Socrates' disciple Plato. Plato wrote stuff down. Socrates never did. And so he writes this wonderful parable about a guy in a chariot. He has this beautiful match team in front of him. And, and he had to learn to control them. And, and what the fable really says is that the one horse is reason and, and the other horse is not. The other horse is compassion. And until you get your reason and your compassion or your reason and your love worked out in harmony, your chariot can't be efficient. Nice little parable. 
Jesus gives all sorts of parables, but the, the, the point of any parable or any fable is to teach us a lesson. And the one thing that Jesus would have us come to understand is that we must, we must come to understand our relationship to Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, and it makes no sense. That's what this section of the Sermon on the Mount is saying, is that it's not easy. We've made the laws so easy that we can check them off, and we've given ourselves all sorts of wiggle room, have we not? We've justified everything we want to justify to get ourselves away from it. Well, they deserve it. And Oh, I'm not really gossiping, because it's a truth. Um... There's a story about Sven and Ole. I don't know if you've ever been to the, to the Quad Cities out in the western of the United States, but the Sven and Ole lived there. And Sven and, and Ole, you got the Swede and you got the Norwegian. And you know them Norwegians, you can always be telling them something. You just can't tell them much. That's it. <laughs> Sven and Ole lived next door to each other. They were farmers. They'd lived there for years, and they'd, they'd gotten along fairly well. And one day, one of Swen's dogs, and he had a bunch of them all over the farm, one of Swen's dogs went over, and Oli's little two-year-old son was playing out in the, in the fields, and the dog attacked him and mauled him, and he killed him. And the relationship between Sven and Ole was never the same. You can imagine that. Sven was very upset. Ole was very upset. The child was very dead. So Sven, did I say Sven owned the dog? Sven's dog is not an issue at this point. It's the relationship between Sven and Ole. So these who had been friends for years now didn't speak to each other. They didn't go on the same side of the street when they were downtown. There was no community left. And, of course, the, the, the town was divided about this. Some took Sven's time. Well, he couldn't help it. A dog's a dog. Some took Ole's side. Yes, but his dear son is, is dead. It was destroying the community because of the animosity between these two. I apologize, why don't you take the apology and that to be enough? Because your darn dog killed my son. And finally, after some time, Sven became ill. He couldn't, he couldn't farm. He was in danger, couldn't get his fields plowed, couldn't get his crops in, therefore he couldn't pay for his farm. One night... He went to bed totally despondent, and when he woke up the next day, he looked out and he saw that everything was set. The fields had been plowed and they'd been harrowed. Everything was ready to be planted. And he, how'd this happen? And he found out that Ole had done it. And so Sven went over to Ole and he said, I want to thank you for for doing my field, but we not talked there for so long. What happened? And Ole said, it was simple. I had to plow your field. I had to help you. 
Because unless I could do that, God could no longer live in this community. Now, I don't know that we could pick the theology of that apart right away. Somebody's going to argue, well, God lives any place, things like that. But the point being is somebody had to step forth in terms of reconciliation in the midst of this most deplorable, this unimaginable, horrible event. For you and me, that's Jesus Christ. Him who was crucified, who was put to the cross. He stepped forward and plowed our ground and prepared it for the seeds to be planted that we might have life, you see. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just about you and me, God. It's about us. It's about reconciling those things in our life that are broken because Christ reconciled for us. May you embrace that, and may you turn to the one next to you and you be as close to them as Sven then was to Ole, and may the Lord live in your heart. Amen.